Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here, you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her. And today we have a repeat guest, Steve Goldring, um, uh, creator, author of Simple Hormones. So welcome back again, Steve. Thank you so much. I think this is my third conversation with you, Amy. And I, I love kind of geeking out, geeking out about hormones and menopause and all kinds of other situations. And it's just just fun to talk about these kinds of things and to spread the word to yes. people who may not know all the details. Yes. So I love our conversations. I think you're just one of the experts in the field. And I think you and I, we did an episode on the Women's Health Initiative, um, the big study that scared so many women off of hormones. And then we did another one on osteoporosis and hormones. So yeah, I've just uh, shared that episode with a bunch of people on my email list, especially providers. And so, well, so far, I've gotten a couple of positive responses about it. So hopefully you'll you'll get some more listeners from that. Yes, but I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about today, because this is something um, that I talk about with my patients every day, and that's does doesn't estrogen increase the risk of breast cancer? So today we're going to focus specifically on a really narrow topic is estrogen and breast cancer. So. Yeah. And I'm excited to uh, bring in some of the information from a book that you and I have both talked about. It's called Estrogen Matters by Dr. Avram Blooming, along with Carol Tavris. Um, and you and I have discussed this a little bit in in, in the past, and I, I'm interested in finding out your perspective on some of what he has to say about those particular topics. So again, this is probably the the uh, probably the biggest reason why I think so many women are misguided and are afraid to take hormones. And they specifically say, "Well, I don't want to take estrogen because you know." I'm concerned about the risk of breast cancer. And, you know, maybe they got this idea of my friend, my mother, my sister had breast cancer and it was estrogen positive. And uh, as well as there are so many doctors that are even still telling women that, yeah, you can't take hormones because of your family history or, or your increased risk of breast cancer. So we're going to dive deep and talk about all the things estrogen and breast cancer. So where should we start? Maybe uh, how did this theory come about? Well, um, I've, I've read a little bit from a guy named Dr. Leon Spiroff, who is a professor. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure he's retired now from Oregon State University. And he has written uh, one of the, the biggest, most important books about uh obstetrics and gynecology and he talks a lot about estrogen in that book i, I think it's a, a well-known textbook that's used in a lot of medical schools and you may even have even run across it in your studies oh for sure it's a definitely a textbook that at least in residency was part of our curriculum and particularly our reproductive endocrinology curriculum right. of referencing that textbook but leon spiroff has said something that really stuck with me um he said that Hormones don't cause breast cancer. Hormones influence breast cancer. And there's a subtle but significant difference between those two. And I think there's there's been a lot of uh, information along the way over the last hundred years or so that would kind of lead people to believe that estrogen and other hormones cause breast cancer. But if you just think about it uh, from a, a logical point of view, young women when they turn 12 and start having periods, their estrogen level skyrockets and stays relatively high for 40 years or 35 years. 
and they do not necessarily all get breast cancer. A percentage of them do, but you have to think about it from a logical standpoint. If hormones cause breast cancer, then all of those young women would get it. And that's just simply not true from a from a basic logical standpoint. So what's what's your perspective on that, Amy? Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. The biggest risk of now, certainly we've probably all heard of some story and um, heard celebrities of, of periodically we'll hear a tragedy of a young woman developing breast cancer. But for the most part, breast cancer is is a disease of aging. In fact, uh, the risk of breast cancer significantly goes up with age. So, you know, we tell people, or at least I tell my patients that in your lifetime, about one in 12 women are going to get breast cancer, but that risk is very low when you're younger and it just steadily climbs as you age. And so, and the biggest risk of breast cancer is after menopause, when your hormones, you know, plummet rapidly. So it's just, you know, just the agree, the thought process behind it is if estrogen was causing breast cancer, you would get it when estrogen levels are at their highest, not their lowest. And estrogen levels are at their highest for decades, not just a little bit. They're they're up and down throughout the month, but relatively high for 30, 40 years it would seem obvious that that would be the the cause if hormones cause or estrogen specifically caused breast cancer but we don't see that pattern as right. you mentioned we see a much higher spike in breast cancer cases after women go into menopause and after they've lost their hormones especially the estradiol or the the main estrogen now one thing i want to point out um I'm a pharmacist and I am not an oncologist. I'm not a breast cancer specialist. I I basically defer to a lot of those specialists. Um, and, and I really follow a lot of uh, physicians who really are experts in breast cancer. Now, I, I want to... Yeah, you know, now this. that you brought that up, it is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is, but I'm not really sure that the breast specialist are really reading the the hormone data is and, and you know I've actually recently had some patients that have told me um my doctor actually is interested in talking to you and wants to hear your perspective on hormones of breast cancer and, and maybe I'm wrong and in the future once we get episodes like this out there and we talk about the data I'd like to share with them this podcast but I'm not sure, and, and I'll have to confirm that once I reach out to my local oncologist, but I'm not 100% sure that breast specialists are really reading the hormone data. Um, maybe they're focused more on the chemo data and the surgical data and surgical techniques. Um, I, I'm just not sure they're actually reading that data. Yeah, I would suspect that's probably true. There's maybe maybe two different camps of providers and they're not necessarily communicating with, with each other across those disciplines. And this is an area where we get kind of silos. We yes. get uh, breast cancer experts siloed away from hormone experts and they don't necessarily uh, meet in the middle. They don't necessarily look at the whole process very holistically. Um, at, at least that's my perception. I, I don't want to take pot shots at oncologists or anything like that. Same. But but I wanna I wanna make sure that that patients anyway understand that there are uh, various ways, various angles of looking at these same issues, and sometimes we need to kind of bring those two thoughts together. And kind of that that's what I think Avram Blooming does is he is an oncologist and he does deal with breast cancer and he has for decades. And so he has a lot of experience in that. So I, I tend to weight what he says in this book pretty heavily when he talks about breast cancer and breast cancer risk. And he also has really uh, examined the, the role of estrogen and hormones in general in breast cancer and in the causation of breast cancer. And I feel like he has some real credibility in that area. Yeah. The other thing he points out on just the overall thought process of just, as we mentioned, of age and estrogen exposure is pregnancy data is uh, 
estrogen levels really skyrocket compared to the non-pregnant women. And, uh, and we don't see uh, worse prognosis, worse survival, or uh, increasing risks in women who are pregnant or in women who have had multiple pregnancies compared to women who have never been pregnant. So- Right. Um, that, that points out another thing that I wanted to mention. Um, that, as you mentioned, pre, uh, pregnancy and breast cancer aren't usually thought of at the same time. Most people don't know someone who got breast cancer while they're pregnant. Now, it does happen, um, but it's relatively rare. What I will also point out is that um, I, I've had this kind of experience over the last several months where a woman commented on my YouTube videos where I was talking about hormones and breast cancer and showing through the research that hormones don't uh, increase the risk of breast cancer. Well, this woman commented and she's actually emailed me a few times that she had been taking hormone replacement therapy and she had something suspicious show up on her mammogram and she was called in for an ultrasound and they asked her to do a biopsy. And this is really kind of uh, a good reminder to me whether women are on hormone replacement therapy or not, they will get breast cancer at some point. I should I should rephrase that. There's a possibility that whether you're on hormones or not, you could get breast cancer. Absolutely. It doesn't mean that the hormones cause the breast cancer, but breast cancer is relatively common. As you mentioned, one in 12 or uh is it one in 12 or one in eight? Yeah. I mean, it depends on what study. I've heard one in eight, one in 12. And while we're talking about it, um, cause I know you, you do work with patients is I'll just go through some of the things that I talk to patients about things they can do to lower their risk. And unlike smoking, which you and I are going to talk about the, um, that, uh, correlation between smoking and lung cancer and estrogen and breast cancer. We'll get to that um, in a minute where we know smoking increases the risk or causes lung cancer. We don't have that with breast cancer where this one thing is, is going to cause breast cancer. And, and that's why I think it's multifactorial. And so I'd love to know what you talk to the patients that you work with, but some of the things that I discuss with patients is, um, being over an ideal body weight, um, uh, having blood sugar issues, uh, alcohol use, um, synthetic hormones, even, you know, a, a recent study came out that any synthetic progestins, even in contraceptives, increase the risk of breast cancer. Um, perhaps even having a non-optimal level of vitamin D, um, uh, poor gut health, poor immune system. So, um, you know, maybe there's even some data that, um, uh, animal products and, and meat may increase the risk of breast cancer. So, you know, there's not just one thing, but there are things you can do from a lifestyle standpoint to potentially lower your risk of breast cancer. What are some things maybe I've missed that maybe you talk to people about lowering the risk of breast cancer? I, I do think, um, so I just recently read uh, Dr. Peter Atia's new book. It's called Outlive. And he talks about the four horsemen those are the four diseases that are most likely to take your life um, over the long term. Of course, you could get hit by a bus and you could die in a hunting accident or, you know, you could get killed in a shooting. But most likely what's going to kill you is either Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes or cancer. And he talks about the strategies that we can use to prevent all of those diseases. He specifically addresses strategies to prevent cancer. And of course, breast cancer would be included in those. It does seem that the, the strategies for breast cancer prevention and other types of cancer prevention are a little bit less grounded in the data. And the research is not as conclusive about prevention of cancer, at least from uh, Peter Atia's standpoint, and I would tend to agree with them, where prevention of diabetic or diabetes and cardiovascular disease are pretty strongly rooted in the research. 
Alzheimer's is getting more of that, maybe not as strong as cardiovascular disease. Um, but, but I definitely think there are things that we can incorporate into our lifestyle. Um, th things like you mentioned, uh, obesity is a major risk factor for breast cancer and alcohol is a risk factor, not necessarily the major risk factor, but a risk factor, uh, in estrogen matters, Avram Blooming talks about the comparison between drinking, uh, moderately and taking hormones. They're about the same as far as the results of the Women's Health Initiative in perceived uh, causation of breast cancer, but they don't necessarily uh, they don't ne necessarily tick off all the boxes that would indicate causation. We can talk about that a little bit later. Um, but there are definitely some factors, some lifestyle factors that can make a difference. And as you're saying, a healthy diet, uh, maintaining a healthy weight, not overdoing it on alcohol. Uh, things like exercise may have an impact. There's not as much research on that kind of thing. Um, one of the problems that we have with cancer research is it's it's really difficult to do a controlled trial where we have 10,000 people and we follow them for 10 years and we document every single thing they do and find out whether they have cancer or not. That's expensive and it's messy and it's not the data is not necessarily super neat and tidy. So we have some of that, but it's not uh, comprehensive and it doesn't necessarily do what we would like it to do as far as clarifying those risk factors. Let's switch gears and talk about where did this thought process come from of that estrogen increases the risk of breast cancer? Um, unfortunately for me, that's been part of the the conversation my basically my entire career as an attending physician when i was in residency uh, i completed residency in the year 2000 um and in my first 2 years of um private practice you know women really didn't have this concern about estrogen and breast cancer um and we were passing out hormones um albeit synthetic hormones, mainly Premarin and, and Prempro, and, and women weren't afraid of hormones at that time. So I want to just go into a little bit of detail, and it's mainly on the Women's Health Initiative, which we went into detail on um, that podcast, but um, let's just go into a little bit for those who missed that on where did this idea come from? Well, it's it's obvious um, if you if you look closely that the Women's Health Initiative is really the primary piece of research that influences the thinking about estrogen and breast cancer to this day. Now, that study was stopped 21 years ago this year, um, and the reason it was stopped is because of a perceived increase in the risk of breast cancer in women who were taking hormones versus women who were taking placebo. And the headline was uh, basically something like 26% increase in the risk of breast cancer or 26% increase in breast cancer for women taking hormones with exclamation points. Um, and it was very clear that this was uh, uh, dramatic. It was shocking. It was upsetting. It was dangerous. Basically, the message from the WHI was hormones are dangerous. Now, yeah, I remember. I still remember that day working in the office of our phones were ringing off the hook of women calling frantically of what should we do. And and women were uh, basically flushing all of their hormones down the toilet and angry at their physicians for prescribing them in the first place and uh, concerned they were going to get breast cancer. And it just was a complete emotional reaction and uh, Avram Blooming points out in Estrogen Matters that it was almost intentionally stirred up to be that kind of emotional reaction. He talks a lot about the political intrigue and the, the way the Women's Health Initiative was announced. So one thing a lot of people don't realize is that uh, a, a new study, especially a landmark new study that is basically the largest clinical trial ever conducted in any medical field, uh, the way it's supposed to be uh, released is through what are called peer-reviewed journals. And so this, uh, the article or the, the report would be disseminated to multiple uh, 
physicians and researchers who were involved in the process and they would make their comments and then they would review the study and then the the, the report would be altered and, and you know edited and then it would be put out over a course of a couple of months in a reviewed journal that's not what happened with the women's health initiative the the leaders of the whi study team decided to call a meeting right now it was a three-hour meeting and it was rushed they showed the study to people during the meeting and said you can make comments but we're publishing it today and they didn't they did not have time to make any comments make any adjustments even though they were shocked at the results they had many questions the results were basically railroaded through and blooming talks about this this is this is kind of a a political thriller in a way a non-fiction political thriller about the politics around the women's health initiative and how there was an apparent agenda to undermine the validity of giving hormones for menopause yeah. um, this is something I, I, I follow Dr. Peter Atia quite closely and he has called it uh, the biggest screw up in the medical field in the last 25 years the idea of withholding hormones from women in menopause and it's all about the women's health initiative causing that withholding and that's that's where the screw up happened What's your perspective? And we're still dealing again. It still amazes me that I'm still having this conversation daily with women, and women are stopping hormones because of their fear of breast cancer. Um, but when in reality, the estrogen only arm of the study actually showed a lower risk of breast cancer. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but so that showed a lower risk, but let's just briefly talk on where did they even get this idea that um, hormones increased the risk? Well, uh, Blooming talks very specifically about the statistics involved in the study. And if anybody knows anybody anything about research, statistics are very important. What you have to do is look closely at the numbers. And so this study... Uh, a very large study, tens of thousands of women, looked at one group of women who took hormone replacement therapy. It was a combination of conjugated equine estrogens. Those are estrogens taken from horse urine. And then along with that, they were given medroxyprogesterone, which is a synthetic version of progesterone. So that combination was looked at versus placebo. And in the study, they showed that the women taking those hormones had what they called a 26% higher uh, rate of breast cancer than women taking placebo. What they failed- Which sounds awful. It does sound terrible, 26%. What they failed to note is that is what's called a relative risk increase. It means that the real number of women who had more breast cancer, if, if you uh, kind of calculate it out based on 10,000 women, it was that 30 women on placebo had uh, breast cancer and 38 women on hormones had breast cancer out of 10,000. And so that was a, the reality is this is a very small difference. This is really a 0.08% difference, not a 26% difference. And so, but that was kind of hidden. That wasn't really broadcast. The other thing, the report from the Women's Health Initi Initiative explicitly states that this 26% increase in breast cancer almost reached statistical significance. Well, when you say something almost reached statistical significance, that's exactly the same as saying it did not reach statistical significance. And basically, in layman's terms, what it means is that could have been a, an increased rate of breast cancer by chance. The difference was so small that it could be just coincidental. Um, and so, but this is something that has totally been de-emphasized by all of the, the researchers' uh, reports talking about the Women's Health Initiative. And it's something that basically it's lost in the shuffle. All we tend to hold on to is that 26% increase in breast cancer when really it was just a tiny little bump and it's not that didn't reach statistical significance. Right. So let's, let's just podcast listeners. Let's just go over that one more time. This big study that has scared women still 
23 years or 21 years later, estrogen lowered the risk and estrogen plus progestin, which I don't even know who's giving that drug anymore, was not statistically significant. Right. And, and this Let's is pause this, there. there's repeating that this this is something people need to remember. Basically, all of your physicians who say that those hormones are going to kill you. This is what they're basing it on. This information, which was completely misinterpreted. And yeah. that's what Avram Blooming talks about extensively in his book is the misinterpretation of the data, which seems almost intentional in some ways yeah. to obscure the reality that hormones don't cause breast cancer. They don't increase the risk. And maybe there was a slightly increased risk, but it's not significant enough to really say, to make any conclusions. Yeah. So you and I talk about in detail all the other flaws of this Women's Health Initiative. I encourage everybody to go back and listen to episode 15. It's called How Hormones Got a Bad Rap. So now let's talk about the data. And I actually have to pull out my book because what I love about this book is um, Dr. Blooming gives like in detail lots of studies that actually show that uh, estrogen is safe in in regards to breast cancer. So I don't know if you have those at your fingertips that maybe we can just go through some of the studies. I actually highlighted at least like uh, 11 really good studies that show that estrogen actually decreases the risk of breast cancer compared to uh, women who are not taking it. So Right. Um, I'd be interested in, in your perception on some of those studies and, and any of them that kind of jump out to you. Yeah. So, um, you know, well, I'll just, you know, I, I hate to be the one to read here, but I know people listen to this when they're driving and putting on their makeup. And so, you know, I'm just going to actually read part of some of the books. So, um, you know, in, in 1986, um, the National Cancer Institute found no significant increased risk of breast cancer among women on Premarin, even those who have been taking it for more than 20 years. Um, number two, a 1988 meta-analysis of 22 studies showed that there was no statistical association between estrogen replacement therapy and breast cancer. Uh, a 1991 study um, that was done by Boston University found there was no increased risk of breast cancer among Premarin users, even after 15 years of use. And, and we know, again, we can go on and on. Uh, here's actually one that's a randomized controlled trial in 1992. Um, this was the first randomized double-blind placebo-controlled placebo trial. So this is the best study there, the kind of the best kind of study there is. Um, and uh, now granted, it was only 168 postmenopausal women um, compared to placebo. Um, and after more than two decades, 11.5% of the women who are taking placebo develop breast cancer, but none of the women who are on hormones developed um breast cancer. Right. And, um, and again, again, this is probably a relatively small number. So even 11% and, and 0% on that small sample size is probably not something we can draw firm conclusions on. But that that uh, plays into our point that we, we can't look at small numbers and say, oh, well, one more person had breast cancer in this group and then in the placebo. And so therefore, it's it causes breast cancer. We, we can't do it that way. We have to look at the statistical significance in these studies. And and Blooming has gone through a lot of those studies in, in quite a lot of detail, which I really appreciate the fact that he's added a lot of those uh, studies before and after the Women's Health Initiative. There are, here's, here's a point that I'd like to make. There are a lot of uh, healthcare providers who will say there's no evidence that uh, hormones are not causing breast cancer and they basically weight the WHI as heavier than any other studies. And they don't recognize there are at least five studies that have been major uh, clinical trials that have been published since the WHI 20 years ago 
that have clearly indicated that giving women estradiol along with uh, bioidentical progesterone does not increase the rate of breast cancer. And these are five very well, uh, very well designed clinical trials and studies that um, stand up to the Women's Health Initiative. Now they're not as big and they're not as well known, but they definitely show the results that we don't need to be afraid of estrogens and progesterones, and progesterone rather. Um, here's one that actually uh, had a lot of people. It was the uh, nurses' health study, and it was you know 121,000 women who were followed for almost 20 years, 1976 to 19. 92 who women who were on hormone at any point um who had been taking it for more than 20 years there was no increased risk of breast cancer compared to women who had never took um hormones and you know again he goes on and on with you know lots of um data in his book um showing study after study after study how estrogen has not been shown to increase the risk of um breast cancer right right and and i love the thoroughness with which he goes over those studies um we we kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier but he mentions a guy named austin bradford hill who is a British biostatistician from the 1940s and he came up with like a framework that had to do with uh causation versus uh coincidence and he talks about these these multiple um these multiple uh what's the word there's kind of a, a relationship between what what you would think of as a causative agent and an outcome like a disease so the first would be a strength the evidence has got to be strong um, or statistically significant and not trivially so, which we didn't see in the Women's Health Initiative. He talks about strength, consistency, specificity, temporal relationship, dose response, plausibility, coherence, and experiment, um, as well as alternative explanations. It's interesting. He draws a parallel between smoking and lung cancer, and he talks about these uh, nine criteria for causation and smoking causing lung cancer fits with all nine of those criteria. It fits with statistical significance and temporal. If a person smokes later on, fairly soon, they can develop uh, lung cancer. And all of these uh, nine issues are addressed directly by the idea of smoking causing lung cancer. And he contrasts that with estrogen causing breast cancer and estrogen causing breast cancer meets exactly zero out of those nine uh, criteria that would indicate something is causative. And so it's a, a pretty strong argument that estrogen is not causing breast cancer, that it's more coincidental that uh, if a woman does take estrogen, she may get breast cancer but it's coincidental. It's not caused by the fact that she's taking estrogen or any type of hormones. Yeah, Steve, I agree with you. I thought this was uh, the really one of the strengths of the book is I'd never looked at it um, this way of comparing smoking and lung cancer to estrogen and breast cancer. So do you have time to actually go through some, what what specifically what you what you mean by these? So so I actually um, have it pulled out here. It's on page 49 because I think the yeah. readers would love to hear like, well, what do you mean? Like the the difference between smoking and lung cancer and estrogen and breast cancer. So right. he talks about the relationship between cigarette smoking and lung cancer is an example of a convincing mosaic of evidence. The causal relationship meets all of Hill's Hill's criteria. Yeah. So um, can we just go through some of them? So, for instance, like strength. So all of the studies of smoking showing that it increases the risk of lung cancer, not a few, all of them. Right. On the other hand, the data between estrogen and breast cancer does, does not show that estrogen increases the risk 
of breast cancer. So that's what he means by strength. He's showing a, a lot of inconsistency that one one study will say, oh, yeah, there's a link. And another study says, oh, no, it's actually lower. And so the the studies aren't consistently all saying the same thing. And that's the point of the criteria is if all of the studies line up and they all say the same thing, well, then it's much more likely to be true. If they're very inconsistent, then you might want to look for a different explanation. Um, he, he talks about the specificity. The overwhelming majority of breast cancer patients have never taken estrogen. Um, and the vast majority of women who have taken hormones have never developed breast cancer. And so it's it goes back to the thing, if estrogen causes breast cancer, why doesn't every woman get it? Well, yeah. versus compared to smoking, question. most people that have developed lung cancer are smokers. And um, the converse is if you don't smoke, it's highly unlikely that you're going to get lung cancer. Absolutely. So. Now, my wife and I have a really good friend who has been extremely health conscious her entire life. She's in her late 60s and she developed breast cancer or no, I'm sorry. She developed lung cancer and everyone the, the immediate thing is well did she smoke the immediate question and she never did smoke and but she is the exception the vast majority of people who develop lung cancer have smoked or they've been exposed to chemicals in in uh, po air pollution or or some type of toxic uh, exposure and so that exception does exist and the same thing happens with estrogen there are women taking estrogen who develop breast cancer but it's the exception rather than the rule yeah what's next temporal um, relationship so um we kind of already talked just, about that yeah it doesn't always or even frequently precede the onset of the disease and so uh it the time in fact we've kind of implied that already when women go into menopause their estrogen levels actually drop and that's a time when breast cancer tends to increase when they've had a decreased exposure to estrogen. Now, that, of course, they have had a long-term lifetime exposure to estrogen, but temporally in time, their exposure has decreased and their likelihood of getting breast cancer goes up. And so that that would tend to go fly in the face of this idea. Yeah. Next one's very similar is dose response relationship. So um, basically, you know, everybody knows that the the more cigarettes that you smoke and the longer that you smoke, the higher your risk of lung cancer. Taking estrogen, that is not the case. You would think if, again, if estrogen um, meets these principles that the longer you are on estrogen, the higher the risk, the higher the dose of estrogen, the higher the risk. And uh, certainly um, many, many studies have failed to show um, any any um, any of those um, conclusions. Right, right. So I, I, I think the, the preponderance of data, especially that uh, Blooming talks about, is just overwhelming that um, estrogen doesn't increase the risk of breast cancer. It is not causative. Um, and the it's, it's a huge stretch in logic and in science to say that estrogen causes breast cancer. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about, uh, so this, what we've talked about so far is primarily rooted in chapter one, does estrogen cause breast cancer? And the, the short answer, Blooming says, is no. Estrogen does not cause breast cancer. He also has another approach. I think it's chapter six, which he talks about. Um, can breast cancer survivors take estrogen? And this is where his experience as an oncologist and as a breast cancer specialist really comes into play. He actually did a pilot study and a clinical trial uh, with women who had survived breast cancer, giving them hormone replacement therapy. Um, and, and his study, uh, along with multiple other studies, he talks about studies from Australia, from Europe, and several studies from the U.S. that have demonstrated the possibility that women can take estrogen after they've had breast cancer and survived, 
and it does not increase the recurrence of breast cancer. What What are your thoughts on that, Amy? Yeah, I would agree. I think that the preponderance of evidence um, actually shows that women who take estrogen after a breast cancer diagnosis actually live longer. Um, we never even really talked about all the 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 other health benefits of estrogen on um, taking estrogen, particularly when uh, as soon as you go through menopause as possible um, to reduce your risk of um, Alzheimer's, dementia, cardiovascular disease, colon cancer, osteoporosis, um, keeping your vagina, your vagina healthy. So all of those other benefits. So um, in general, taking estrogen is going to lower your risk of all cause mortality. So whatever, we didn't even touch on that. Um, the problem is though, is the, at least from a practicing gynecologist is the, the, um, medical legal risk is that, um, unfortunately still just so many physicians in the community still, um, mistakenly believe that estrogen causes breast cancer. So unfortunately, even though I don't believe that estrogen increases the risk of breast cancer, um, that just from a medical legal standpoint, if somebody's had breast cancer, um, I need to have their oncologist kind of sign off on it. And there has to be a long informed discussion and informed consent because, because unfortunately of the litigious country that we live on and, you know, um, you know, there's always those experts out there who will, you know, pull out the, you know, there, you know, this doctor does go into detail was there are some studies that show that estrogen does increase the risk of breast cancer. Now there was a lot of um, uh, data mining and problems with those studies, but people will pull out those studies, but like, aha, what about this one? Um, right. So this, this is a question that I get commonly from a lot of my YouTube uh, viewers and people who are emailing me patients saying I've had breast cancer and uh, can I take hormones? I, I'm miserable. I have hot flashes. I can't sleep at night. I have uh, vaginal dryness, um, you know, just the long list of 40 different symptoms that are making their lives completely miserable and they're looking for a solution. And my answer is always, you absolutely can take hormones after you've had breast cancer. And, you know, once you've gone through the, the treatment and, and you're recovered, However, from a practical standpoint, sometimes it's going to be difficult to find a provider who's really willing and able to treat you with hormones because in general, a lot of providers aren't going to be willing to touch you. Uh, now, luckily, I do have a, a medical oncologist who um, is has read the data, has read stuff that I've sent him and is willing to have those conversations and... Um, and is willing to sign off on it, particularly when people get a couple years out of their breast cancer diagnosis. Um, because at the end of the day, unfortunately, once you have breast cancer, you are at much higher risk than the next person to getting breast cancer again, whether you take hormones or not. So I am willing to do it in my practice as long as they, as their oncologist signs off on it. And I do have... Um, one or two oncologists that are willing to have that conversation, but most of the oncologists are telling people, no, you can't do that. Right. It, it, that's, that's a sad situation because these women, uh, literally I've heard from hundreds of them, they're desperate for a solution and they're really struggling. And some of them are suicidally depressed and incredibly anxious and never sleeping two or three hours a night and having hot flashes all night long and on and on and on and on. The stories are heartbreaking, but they feel like there's nothing they can do. And they've been told, you'll just have to get used to it. And this is even more dramatic than the woman who's going into menopause and she hasn't had breast cancer. And so there's still a glimmer, a, po a possible hope that she can be treated with hormones. But I hear this story over and over again with I, I, there's a particular patient that I'm thinking of who commented that she had this uh, this uh, breast something showed up on her her mammogram that was of concern to her doctor. And then she ended up having an ultrasound 
and then she ended up having a biopsy. And basically the advice was you need to stop taking all hormones. And she has had very severe problems with hot flashes and with night sweats. And so they've, they've come back with a vengeance. And the other problem that we have with women who have been treated for breast cancer is one of the primary treatments for breast cancer are aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen, which essentially uh, are estrogen blockers. And if so, not only do you not have estrogen, any estrogen that you do have is being shut down. And so that makes those symptoms much worse than a woman would normally have. And so it, it's a really difficult and sad situation for those women who are struggling with all those uh, menopausal symptoms after breast cancer treatment, during right. and after. I mean, what I typically do is I like to have people have a conversation with their oncologist, but if somebody has estrogen or progesterone receptor positive cancer, which I'd love to talk about your thoughts about that in a second, is after they get a few years out from that is, um, I use a lot of testosterone in those patients and that gives a lot of women um, good symptom relief. Um, or if somebody's um, triple negative breast cancer, then, uh, you know, again, in conjunction with an oncologist, I usually don't have any problems giving um, all of the hormones in that situation. At least after a period of time. After a period of time. Mm -hmm. But again, having that conversation is, you know, you're at increased risk, whether you take the hormones or not. Right, right. Now, is your sense that estrogen receptor positive or progesterone receptor positive cancers are uh, less common th than uh, non-estrogen receptor positive? You know, I, I, I don't read that data and I don't I don't know if I have a really good sense of that, because usually uh, when we're diagnosing breast cancer, it's on a mammogram and I'm not really getting the histology back. And so I guess I don't have a good sense of, you know, who, which one's more common or not. So right, right. Well, we're, we're, we're detecting it and then sending them off. Right. This definitely gets into an area that's beyond my understanding of breast cancer and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I understand the basics of uh, estrogen receptor positive and uh, progesterone receptor positive versus negative. But there's there are multiple varieties of breast cancer and some respond very well to certain therapies. Some respond less to others. Um, Blooming talks about in his book, he really strongly recommends lumpectomy as opposed to radical mastectomy. And I'm sure it, he's talked about it as a fairly controversial view that almost gets him banned in certain circles. Um, but that that's always an interesting topic to me. Not that I know anything about breast cancer surgeries. I'm, I'm not necessarily an expert on that for sure. But um, it, it's certainly from the perspective of, a let's say, a, a husband and wife who are considering the options. If I were the husband in that situation, a lumpectomy, if that had an equal chance of success, would sound like a much better option, much less invasive, much less uh, recovery time, much less uh, kind of kind of damaging than a radical mastectomy, um, it, it would seem like, wow, that, that seems a lot more hopeful. But I, I don't know what you other know, people- I agree. I tend to stay out of those conversations. And when I'm detecting a lump or re, you know getting the report of an abnormal mammogram that's suspicious for malignancy and, and patients oftentimes want to come in the office and talk to me uh, before- I refer them to a, a breast surgeon and people will ask me that. And, and that's just not my area of expertise of, I, I tell people of, you know, you need to talk to your surgeon and they're going to have to look at your, your imaging and, and your biopsy and, and your tumor. And, you know, I'm not reading that data of lumpectomy versus mastectomy, but it seems like um, if Many women, if they opt for a mastectomy, then they don't have or aren't recommended to take tamoxifen versus if they go the lumpectomy route, then it's lumpectomy with tamoxifen. And my experience has been is if those are the choices, if it was me, I would prefer a mastectomy um, because tamoxifen just seems like an 
awful drug and people are miserable with that. And I also see people in follow-ups of, and I see the cosmetics of the final result of a mastectomy and, and people just do such a great job now that, um, when it's all said and done, you know, usually people cosmetically actually look, look a little better. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good news. Yeah. I never thought of it from that perspective. That's an interesting perspective. Uh, Oh, I have to read through that and and kind of look at it from that. So you're right, though. It absolutely is, has to be. Um, again, I don't do those surgeries, so I don't know. But I, I would have to imagine that a mastectomy is a much bigger surgery, more recovery than a lumpectomy. But um, I, I guess if those were my choices, and I had a very good friend who that actually was her choice, lumpectomy with tamoxifen or mastectomy, and I said, Oh, I would get the mastectomy if I were you. Like tamoxifen is awful. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, and and patients, maybe we don't necessarily see the results of all of those patients who have gone on tamoxifen and really struggled with the consequences. Yeah, people are just miserable with that drug. Yeah, that so. is a difficult one, huh? Um, but I think that sometimes people think, oh, my tumor is estrogen is estrogen or progesterone receptor positive, then they think it was caused by hormones. And I don't have a great way to explain that to people other than the hormones didn't cause it. It's once you got a tumor, those tumors then developed those receptors. And then we have drugs that work on those receptors. But I don't do a great job of explaining that just because your tumor is estrogen or progesterone receptor positive doesn't mean it was caused by hormones. Right. I think it goes back to what Leon Spiroff, the OBGYN professor says that uh, hormones don't cause breast cancer. They influence breast cancer. And that's kind of the area that he's talking about, that if they caused it, you would get it probably fairly early in your uh, young womanhood. And you wouldn't you wouldn't get it after you've gone into menopause or, you know, in your 30s or 40s. It would be much earlier because it just makes sense. It's that temporal uh, that temporal connection. When you when you start getting higher levels of estrogen, you should start getting higher levels of breast cancer. And it doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. So. Anyway, I think we kind of hit it. I don't know uh, anything else that we uh, still need to tell our listeners about estrogen and breast cancer. Hopefully we have uh, persuaded a lot of women not to be afraid of estrogen. I think so. Um, I, w- one thing that I always like to reiterate is, especially for women in menopause, um, perimenopause is a little bit different situation, but when me- women have stopped making their hormones, uh, what I like to emphasize is if you get those hormones optimized, and I mean levels that aren't too high and they're not too low, but they're just right, then there are two things that are likely to happen. Number one is you're going to be able to probably eliminate all your menopause symptoms, whether it's hot flashes, irritability, weight gain, vaginal dryness, uh, insomnia, anxiety, depression, or any of a long list of symptoms. But number two, you're also going to be able to reduce your long-term health risks. And when I say reduce those long-term health risks, I'm talking about those four horsemen that are most likely to kill you. Cardiovascular disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and type 2 diabetes. And there are multiple other uh, health risks that you can reduce by having optimal hormone levels. Now, when we say optimal hormone levels, we mainly mean estradiol and progesterone, but also uh, testosterone. And then we need to look at thyroid and we need to look at cortisol and we need to look at, you know, a long panel of other hormones. So from my perspective, the key, and this is what I, I kind of base a lot of my recommendations on, the key is to find a hormone optimization specialist. And if you go to your uh, family practice doctor and they're maybe hesitant or outright resistant to prescribing hormones or adjusting your hormones, it's especially important to look for a hormone specialist, somebody like Dr. Brenner, who's been through an extensive training program. And maybe you can comment, Amy, about 
the kind of training that you received in medical school and even in residency about hormones and hormone optimization versus what you've done later? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's embarrassing. Um, as a board certified OBGYN, the level of training I received on perimenopause and menopause management and balancing hormones. It's, it's, it's embarrassing is, uh, now granted when I was in residency, I think the only hormones that I was ever taught about or ever prescribed were Premarin, Prempro, um, then, then maybe some Activella and some Fem HRT, and that's about it. And I didn't, we, I didn't know all of this data. And I guarantee you that most OBGYNs um, actually are misinformed about the data and are afraid to give hormone replacement therapy to their menopausal women, which is, which, you know. I'm going to actually go on a limb and say, I think is malpractice because I think that we're doing a huge disservice to women and putting women at increased risk of those, those diseases that you mentioned by withholding hormones to women. So, um, but no, my training was actually really poor um, until I, you know, started my own practice and made hormones one of my main focuses and, uh, and uh, it's a constant battle. Even still, there's a lot of just poor data out there with headlines that say hormones cause this and hormones cause breast cancer. And, and, and people get really misinformed until you really dig deep and are, are understanding the literature. Yeah. And what you're pointing out is it really emphasizes the importance of having that additional training and so many providers through no, no fault of their own i'm not i'm not criticizing those obgyns or or family practice doctors or other providers that just haven't had the background in hormones but the the reality is they don't get it and they have to seek it out yes. uh, after residency and they have to seek it out in in some training programs um one thing I'd like to point out is I do have relationships as a pharmacist, and I have a, a list of several hundred providers all over the U.S. and Canada and even some in the U.K., and so I can't guarantee that I can find a provider in, in anyone's particular area, but I can give it my best shot. I do offer a referral program on my website for uh, if, if you don't live in central Ohio and you don't live close enough to see Dr. Amy Brenner, well, I might be able to help you find somebody who's uh, close in your area that, that might be able to help you out. Let's also, can you also talk about where people can find you? Because you have also a plethora of information um, about other topics of hormones. Yeah. So um, my website is simplehormones.com. And I emphasize my uh, my patient education programs that I use to uh, support doctors, nurse practitioners, and physician's assistants in their education of patients about these particular topics. I like to ask myself two questions. Is it simple? And is it about hormones? And if if it fits those two criteria, then I'll cover that kind of information. So I have a lot of resources for providers, but I also have, as I mentioned, some resources for patients, including uh, referrals. I have a lot of uh, video materials on my YouTube channel. Um, if you look up hormone pharmacist on YouTube, you can find me there. And I have uh, well over 70 or something videos, uh, a lot of which revolve around menopause, perimenopause, breast cancer, all those kinds of things. Um, what I'll do is uh, in the show notes, um, we'll put a link to uh, a particular page on my website that has some specific resources for your listeners. Um, I can't remember what the, the address is at the moment. So I'll have yeah, we'll put it down there. Photos. And then people can find me as well as some resources specifically for your listeners. Well, this was great. I hope we convinced everybody not to be afraid of estrogen. Again, love to talk to you again. Maybe we could do this about the data on progesterone or testosterone to make it a trifecta where we go over the data on that. So right. well, I'm always up for a podcast interview and uh, let's do it again soon. This this will be our fourth podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yep. All right. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.